Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Ortlund. Welcome to my weekly show, Truth to Power. That was Chris Davidson singing Truth to Power, a song I wrote with him. Chris is a British singer-songwriter who was discovered by Freddie Mercury's manager. You can find that song and all the other songs I've written with him on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Truth to Power is also the title of my book, which is a history of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, and my newspaper, New York Native, which I ran from 1980 until we went out of business in 1997. On my show, I explore a lot of the unresolved stories we covered about the politics and science of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. And if you think these issues only affect a tiny minority of people, please stay tuned because you have some surprises coming. Today I'm going to read the opening section of Truth to Power. This section of my book captures the terror and confusion the whole world felt in the very first days and weeks of the AIDS epidemic. I describe what it was like to run a gay newspaper in New York City at the ground zero of what was initially perceived as a gay epidemic. You will experience the first twists and turns of the questionable science and sinister politics that laid the foundation for the world's mistaken understanding of what AIDS is and what really causes it. It was during this period that I learned the hard way that epidemics never have a second chance to leave a first impression. I hope you are intrigued enough by this opening section of my 466-page book to pick up a copy on Amazon. The Kindle version of Truth to Power is especially affordable for anyone on a budget. And by the way, lately it has been a bestseller on Amazon in its category. Truth to Power, New York Native, 1980-1997 Introduction in The March of Folly, Barbara Tuckman uses the word folly to describe periods in history of egregious, self-defeating misgovernment. And one of her most dramatic examples of folly is America's catastrophic policies during the Vietnam era. I think that the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome era could have easily fulfilled the requirements of her definition of folly or counterproductive misgovernment. And in terms of the medical and social damage that the foolishness of the AIDS CFS era has caused and is still causing, Vietnam by comparison starts to look like a minor example of the political vice she describes. Tuckman identifies periods of government folly as ones in which policies are pursued which run counter to the government's best interests. They are periods of presumptuousness and hubris that practically beg the gods for comeuppance. They are the times in history that prompt one to ask, what were they thinking? They involve wooden-headedness and massive self-deception. Governments, frozen in fixed belief, ignore all evidence to the contrary that warns them away from the precipice of disaster. Essentially, during Tuckman-esque periods of folly, governments stop thinking and forsake common sense and sound judgment. To qualify for Tuckman's Certificate of Folly, a policy adapted must meet three criteria. It must have been perceived as counterproductive in its own time, not merely by hindsight. The second criterion is, a feasible alternative course of action must have been available. And the third criterion is, 
that the policy should be that of a group, not an individual ruler. For any jury of historians that tries to determine if the AIDS era truly satisfies Tuckman's criteria for a judgment of folly, I offer New York Native as Exhibit A for the prosecution. During the formative years of the AIDS epidemic, the critical reporting and editorials of the New York Native continually pointed out that the AIDS CFS policies of the government and the AIDS establishment were wooden-headed and counterproductive. As the folly of the epidemic proceeded inexorably, New York Native made it abundantly clear that there was a feasible alternative to the catastrophically mistaken, bigoted politics, epidemiology, and virology of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome that concealed one shocking, multi-systemic pandemic. And as the horrific story of the epidemic unfolded in relentless detail in the pages of New York Native, it became painfully obvious that there was plenty of blame to pass around, and no single individual was the unifying tyrant completely controlling this dystopian period of biomedical totalitarianism and abnormal science. The demise of New York Native, which itself came under fire from the gay community as well as the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome establishment, for its diligent and inconvenient truth-telling, is just another layer of the epidemic's tragic folly. Ron Rosenbaum devotes a chapter of his fascinating book, Explaining Hitler, The Search for the Origins of His End, to the Munich Post, the fearless newspaper which Hitler's party referred to as the Poison Kitchen. According to Rosenbaum, the newspaper was Hitler's nemesis, the persistent poison thorn in his side. Rosenbaum wrote, The Munich Post journalists were the first to focus sustained, critical attention on Hitler. From the very first moments this strange specter emerged from the beer hall backrooms to take to the streets of Munich in the early 1920s. They were the first to tangle with him, the first to ridicule him, the first to investigate him, the first to expose the seamy underside of his party, the murderous criminal behavior masked by its pretensions to being a political movement. They were the first to attempt to alert the world to the nature of the rough slouching toward Bethlehem. And they kept up their brave journalistic resistance for a dozen years. Hitler was obsessed with the defiant newspaper because they knew how to get to him, get under his skin. The newspaper nicknamed The Poison Kitchen might never have stood a chance to prevail, but its writers and editors persisted in the face of the darkening political situation of Hitler's rise to power. Rosenbaum noted, It was an unfair, unseen struggle. They were a small band of scribblers taking on a well-financed army of murderous thugs. But in ways large and small, they made his life miserable. The newspaper consistently referred to the Nazi party as the Hitler party because their reported use of the term was a relentless reminder to their readers that the crimes they reported on by Nazi party members were the personal responsibility of one man, that the party they reported on was less a serious, ideologically-based movement than an instrument for one man's criminal pathology. The heroic reporters, men such as Martin Gruber, Erhard Auer, Edmund Goldschag, Julius Zertas, among others, were in the trenches every day taking on Hitler, facing down his thugs and their threats, testing the power of truth to combat evil, and sharing the Cassandra-like fate of discovering its limits. 
That poison kitchen of a newspaper showed the power of great journalism to peer into the future. According to Rosenbaum, the journalists of the Munich Post even glimpsed through a glass darkly the shadow of the final solution. In fact, they picked up the fateful Hitler euphemism for genocide, the final solution, in the context of the fate of the Jews as early as December 9, 1931, in a chilling and prophetic dispatch called The Jews in the Third Reich. The Munich Post correctly saw the Nazi party as a homicidal criminal enterprise beneath the facade of a political party. Rosenbaum writes, in the end, as their fate and the fate of Germany became clear, they had to accept the shocking, crushing realization that despite their best efforts, their sacrifices, the years of struggle against Hitler, the ridicule, the exposés, the crimes, the death toll they pinned on him, Hitler had won and all he threatened was about to come horrifically true. According to Rosenbaum, the Munich Post fought to the bitter end. Rosenbaum explained that his goal in writing about the Munich Post was to restore the poison kitchen vision to historians whose attempts to explore Hitler could not help but benefit from exposure to the kind of investigative intimacy the Munich Post achieved in its hand-to-hand, eye-to-eye combat with Hitler. It could be argued that if there was one poison kitchen during the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, it was the New York native. Although the newspaper was as unsuccessful as the Munich Post in preventing a human disaster of unprecedented scope, it at least put up a very determined fight, hand-to-hand, eye-to-eye combat, with the political and pseudoscientific forces that gave the world the HIV-AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome is not AIDS paradigms. The New York native stood up week after week to the puppet masters of the catastrophe, and although the journalists of the New York native did not suffer the same consequences as the journalists of the Munich Post, at the beginning of 1997, after 15 years of being the AIDS and CFS establishment's poison kitchen, the New York native was silenced. Chapter 1, 1981 to 1984, The Fog of Epidemiology. News of what would eventually be called the AIDS epidemic first surfaced formally in the mass media in the shocking story in the New York Times on July 3, 1981, which I remember was an extremely hot day in Manhattan. I had left the New York native office on West 57th Street late and picked up an early edition of the New York Times. When I got home, I was very tired, but I was shaking by the time I finished reading the story. It would be one of those moments when time stood still, like the Kennedy assassination, or the moment decades later when I turned on the TV the morning of 9-11. At the time, I was the publisher and editor-in-chief of a struggling gay literary magazine called Christopher Street and New York Native, a gay paper that had been started the previous December in hopes of saving our struggling little publishing company. After reading the disturbing report about a supposedly mysterious cancer that was striking gay men, I immediately called the editor of both publications, Tom Steele, who had been working with me late at the office. My voice was quavering as I read him parts of the article. I didn't get much sleep that night. In the ensuing days and weeks, I struggled to get a hold of the emerging amorphous facts about the mysterious new disease while grappling with the state of severe anxiety that the terrifying news had aroused in me. 
We asked a gay doctor we knew, Dr. Lawrence Mass, to investigate the cases, which were soon called gay-related immune deficiency syndrome. This was totally uncharted territory for me, and we initially relied on Mass's medical background to help clarify what was going on for our readers. As I began to calm down and accept the situation we were in, I soon chose a determined, pragmatic path for the newspaper. We would devote the paper to methodically getting to the bottom of the epidemic and make the disease the newspaper's signature story. While I was personally terrified of the implications, as a publisher, I sensed that this was going to be a huge event. I tried to be optimistic. I told myself that in an age of scientific and technological genius and daily miracles, surely a cause would be found and a cure would follow. Wasn't that how science operated? In those early days, when what was initially labeled gay-related immune deficiency was evolving into acquired immune deficiency syndrome, a significant part of every business day was consumed with just trying to provide myself with the beginnings of a scientific education. English major meet epidemiology, immunology, and virology. Tom Steele had more of a scientific background than I did, and he helped me familiarize myself with the workings of the immune system, which seemed to be going awry in the gay victims of the epidemic. In the early period of the epidemic, scientists noticed first that specific disease-fighting cells in the immune system, namely T-cells, were not functioning or were decimated in gay men. Many gay men started going to their doctors to find out whether anything was wrong with their T-cells, and to my chagrin, at the time it seemed like everyone I talked to who had a T-cell test found out that they were suffering from T-cell deficiency. It was hard at the time not to wonder apocalyptically if they were all going to get this disease and die. Unfortunately, it was mostly gay American men who were suddenly looking closely and suspiciously at their own immune systems. If the whole country had followed suit, history might have turned out differently. Had we known about the so-called chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic at that point, we would have been talking about gay men as having an extreme or acute form of the immune dysfunction that had been seen in the chronic fatigue syndrome patients. From 1981 to early in 1983, every kind of scientific hypothesis in the world was discussed as the possible cause of AIDS. As a publisher eager to know every possibility and to share them with the readers of New York Native, I was willing to listen to anyone who had an idea. I felt that the right answer could come from anywhere. Some people thought that AIDS was caused by recreational drug use. The director of the Centers for Disease Control's AIDS Task Force made a remark that he hoped it was poppers, amyl or butyl nitrite, a drug then heavily used by gay men to enhance sex. The drug causes the constriction of blood vessels and makes the heart beat faster, but the CDC was unable to find a perfect correlation between the use of poppers and the mysterious disease. The same lack of correlation held true for other drugs that were being used by gay men. The CDC also could not correlate any specific sexually transmitted disease with the array of symptoms which they had labeled AIDS. During those first two years of the epidemic, I was generally trustful of our government and the CDC scientists initially assigned to the problem. They seemed sincere and decent. When I talked to CDC scientists like James Curran, they seemed responsive and respectful. The scientists I had contact with did not strike me as being particularly anti-gay. 
although disconcerting AIDS jokes were beginning to circulate even among physicians and scientists. I hoped they were not a sign of things to come. Alarmingly, the cases began to mount and Lawrence Mask thoroughly covered each disturbing development that basically kept gay men in a permanent state of dread, always waiting for the next shoe to drop. As our reporting on the epidemic took up more and more space in New York Native, the circulation started to go down. Many people in the New York gay community wanted me to downplay the epidemic because they felt it was bad for the image of gay people and disastrous for gay businesses. One prominent businessman who spent a great deal of money advertising in the New York Native told me he was considering leaving the paper if we continued to cover the epidemic. I was concerned about the community's business and the natives, but I felt it was the paper's responsibility to cover the story and to get to the bottom of it. To borrow a notion from Hannah Arendt, I felt like world history had broken out and New York Native was destined to play a part in the thick of it. I even fantasized that New York Native might play a significant role in ending the epidemic. At one business meeting early in the epidemic, two of my advertising people, Derek and Daniel, implored me to cut down on the coverage of the epidemic, or at least keep it off the cover of New York Native. I told them that was not possible and that they would both have to try harder to sell ads. Within four years, they were both dead from AIDS. Frankly, New York Native did not have much of a skeptical or even investigative attitude towards the government during those first two years. A dramatic example of the paper's misplaced trust occurred when the director of the National Gay and Lesbian Task Force, Virginia Puzo, expressed some concern about confidentiality with regard to some AIDS research that was going on. I wrote an editorial suggesting that gay men would have to share information about their health to enable scientists in their search for the cause of the epidemic. I was assuming everything was being done in good faith in those days. Patients, doctors, scientists, the gay community, the government, we were all in it together, supposedly. In 1982, there was one thing that happened that did start to make me wonder about the government's role and integrity. There was a report that had nothing to do with AIDS directly, but was about two government agencies sharing the names of gay men in a variety of studies. It suggested that the government was playing fast and loose with gay privacy issues. I began to wonder if the CDC might be capable of such questionable antics. On March 14, 1983, I published what would turn out to be the most talked about piece and most consequential in New York Native's history. At 5,000 words, it was also the longest. 1,112 and counting by screenwriter and novelist Larry Kramer, appeared prominently on the cover, and many now consider it the cri de coeur that launched, for better or worse, the era of AIDS activism. Looking back three decades later at the piece, what I am most struck by is the way it captured the terror and the panic and the sense of impending catastrophe and doom in the gay community. At the time, I was committed to making the pages of the Native available to any writer who would make a credible attempt to explain politically or scientifically what was going on or offer ideas on how to deal with a disaster that seemed to be growing exponentially on a daily basis. Kramer began the article, quote, If this doesn't scare the shit out of you, we're in real trouble. If this article doesn't rouse you to anger, fury, rage, and action, gay men may have no future on earth. 
our continued existence depends on just how angry you can get, unquote. His call for anger and more anger would turn out over the years to be boilerplate Kramer. One person with chronic fatigue syndrome told me years later that she approached Kramer after one of his public Jeremiads and said, Mr. Kramer, I just wanted to thank you for your anger. Over the years, urging people to be angry began to strike me as a very peculiar gospel. Throughout his piece, Kramer portrayed the gay community as being on the brink of extinction. He presented the current numbers of dead and dying and left the impression of a tsunami of a plague that might engulf every gay man in its path. He wrote, For the first time in the epidemic, leading doctors and researchers are finally admitting they don't know what is going on. His parade of horribles included a doctor who was sorry he ever got involved with the mysterious disease, packed hospitals, patients being treated as lepers, and gay suicides in the face of the horror. He spoke of an outrageous lack of funding for research, blaming it on anti-gay prejudice. He wrote that the straight medical community, which supposedly knew the disease was not going to stay limited to gays, could, quote, use us as guinea pigs to discover the cure for AIDS before it hits them, which most medical authorities are still convinced will be happening shortly in increasing numbers, unquote, and use us, they ultimately did. Kramer took a shot at the man who would become his personal bet noir, New York City's Mayor Ed Koch. He wrote, Repeated attempts to meet with him have been denied us. Repeated attempts to have him make a very necessary public announcement about this crisis and public health emergency have been refused by his staff. He complained about the mayor's liaison to the gay community, Herb Rickman, basically portraying him as a gay enemy of the gay community, someone who was incompetent and insensitive to the political needs of the hour. In a litany of things Kramer was sick of, he listed elected officials who in no way represent us, closeted gay doctors, closeted gays, guys who moan that giving up careless sex until this blows over is worse than death, guys who think that all being gay means is sex in the first place, and every gay man who does not get behind this issue totally and with commitment to fight for his life. We didn't realize at the time the degree to which getting behind this issue meant getting behind Kramer and his poorly grounded epidemiological beliefs and rage-driven rhetoric. Kramer criticized The Advocate, the country's largest gay publication, which has yet to acknowledge that there's anything going on, and their own associate editor, Brent Harris, died from AIDS. He wrote, with the exception of The Native and a few, very few other gay publications, the gay press has been useless. What he said about the Centers for Disease Control in the piece is quite ironic, given what was to come to light in the next three decades. He wrote, If there have been, and there may have been, any cases in straight, white, non-intravenous, drug-using, middle-class Americans, the Centers for Disease Control isn't telling anyone about them. The CDC also tends not to believe white, middle-class male victims when they say they are straight, or female victims when they say their husbands are straight and don't take drugs. Regardless of his criticism of the CDC's competence, its funding, or its ability to keep up with the expanding caseload, there really wasn't much daylight between the CDC's epidemiological presumptions about what AIDS was and how it was transmitted, 
and the careless sex notions that were implicit and explicit in Kramer's historic rant and every other piece he vented in during the next three decades. One red flag about Kramer's adult political judgment that stands out in his piece is the statement, Southern newspapers and Jerry Falwell's publications are already printing editorials proclaiming AIDS as God's deserved punishment to homosexuals. So what? Nasty words make poor little sissy pansy wilt and die? He ended the article with the names of 21 people he knew, some with just first names, who had died of the illness and closed with, If we don't act immediately, then we face our approaching doom. In the same issue, Larry Bush reported on a development that certainly would give poor little sissy pansies pause. Margaret Heckler was about to become the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Bush wrote, Heckler had served in Congress for 16 years before being defeated by Representative Barney Frank in last year's fall election. Frank received the largest single contribution from the Human Rights Campaign Fund in 1982, partly because he was matched for re-election against a woman who had voted to deny gays access to federal legal services and to retain the 10-year prison term provided for sodomy convictions in Washington, D.C. Shortly after we published the Kramer piece, I received a phone call from John Barrett, then an editor at Geo Magazine. He had just read an interesting hypothesis about the cause of AIDS in New Scientist, a colorful British scientific journal that is a mixture of serious and pop science. The brief article was about a letter that had been published in one of the world's leading medical journals, The Lancet. In the letter, a young scientist in Boston named Jane Tees proposed for the first time that AIDS might be caused by African swine fever virus. She pointed out that the symptoms of AIDS closely resembled those of African swine fever. She also noted that in Haiti, which also had a growing AIDS epidemic, there was simultaneously an epidemic of African swine fever virus in pigs. She hypothesized that vacationing gay men might have contracted the disease by eating undercooked pork. I instantly thought the theory was reasonable and should be explored. It had the ring of truth to it. I discussed the hypothesis with James DeRamo, a man with a Ph.D. in medical ecology and infectious diseases who had become our new science reporter, and I asked him to call Tease and arrange to interview her in Boston, which he did the following weekend. I was feeling very competitive about the story. I wanted New York Native to publish the first lengthy interview with her. When DeRamo got back from Boston and filled me in on her ideas, I was even more convinced that her hypothesis was the most compelling one I had heard in two years. We published his interview with Tease in the May 23, 1983 issue and started it on the cover with the headline, Is African Swine Fever the Cause? The day the article appeared, something weird happened. A gay activist in New York attacked the idea publicly and said he thought the Tease idea was racist. That struck me as very strange, and I wondered if we had hit some mysterious political nerve. It wasn't the reaction I was expecting from anyone in the gay community. At the time that Tease wrote her letter, she was a postgraduate student at the Harvard School of Public Health, and she didn't have much money. I was soon talking to her on a regular basis, and she told me she wished she could attend a conference in Florida about exotic 
animal diseases because some sessions of the meeting were going to focus on African swine fever. I offered to pay for the trip to the conference because I was convinced the scientists there might support her idea and help test it. She called us after the first day of the conference and was elated. She had presented her ideas at one of the African swine fever sessions. When she was done, the man who was leading the session denounced her idea to the audience, but afterwards a number of scientists approached her and expressed their enthusiasm about the idea that there was a link between African swine fever and AIDS. She began to make arrangements at the conference to test her hypothesis with some of the scientists. At that point, I thought the money to send her there had been well spent, but that all changed later that week. She called to tell us that at a reception near the end of the conference, she had seen the interested scientists talking to government officials who were in attendance. Subsequently, one by one, the scientists who had previously been enthusiastic about her idea approached her to tell her they would not be able to investigate her hypothesis. She felt that they had all been pressured to change their minds. From the very beginning of the epidemic, government scientists had given the impression that finding out what was the cause of AIDS was their first and only priority. It therefore puzzled me when there was government resistance about testing Teese's very reasonable African swine fever hypothesis. When Jane Teese wrote directly to the CDC in April of 1983 to explain her ASFE idea, she received a cold shoulder. Dr. Michael Gregg, the deputy director of the Epidemiology Program Office wrote to Tease that he had shared her thoughts with Dr. James Curran of the AIDS Task Force and Dr. John Bennett, assistant director for medical science at the Centers for Infectious Diseases. Greg wrote back to Tease, Rest assured that if they and other members of the senior staff here feel that more effort should be directed to uncover any real association between AIDS and African swine fever, it will be done. As I believe I implied in our telephone conversation, it is relatively difficult for outside scientists such as yourself to impact directly on research programs within a center such as CDC. Quite frankly, perhaps the best you can expect is an acknowledgement with thanks. Nevertheless, I do wish to convey to you my personal thanks for your obvious interest and encouragement. As you state, the power of the pen should not be underestimated. In retrospect, this looks like the elitist don't bother us attitude that is typical of the hermetically sealed world of abnormal science that AIDS turned out to be. On May 14, 1983, the first scientific rebuttal to Teese's hypothesis appeared in The Lancet. Five European researchers signed a letter that indicated that they had tested hospital patients with AIDS for antibodies to African swine fever virus. They reported that none of the patients were positive. However, they did leave a door open. They wrote, Attempts at ASFE antigen demonstration and at growing the elusive AIDS agent in swine cells supporting ASFE isolation could be made to investigate further the ASFE hypothesis in AIDS patients. Our results, however, make it unlikely that ASFE and the AIDS agent will be found to be related. Tease was dissatisfied with their approach and felt that their negative findings were questionable. That same month, Gary Noble, the acting director of the Division of Viral Diseases at the CDC, sent a memo to his colleagues noting, quote, 
considerable interest in the possible role of African swine fever virus has been generated in Dr. Jane Tease's letter to The Lancet. Although no known human infection with ASFE has ever occurred, the presence of ASFV infection among swine in Haiti and the ability of the virus to induce some immunosuppression among pigs has led to the hypothesis proposed by Dr. Tease of the Harvard School of Public Health. We've received calls from Dr. Sheldon Landisman, Director, AIDS Haitian Study Group, Downstate Medical Center, New York, asking if we would test sera from Haitians with and without AIDS. Dr. Fred Siegel, Director of Medicine, Mount Sinai School of Medicine, has offered to send some sera from AIDS patients for testing for ASFV antibodies. We have also been asked by Jane Tees and Lawrence Altman of the New York Times if we propose to do testing for sera from AIDS patients for antibodies to ASFE. Noble then added that the Department of Agriculture had shipped the CDC materials necessary to test AIDS sera for antibodies to ASFE, and he made some suggestions about how the testing should be done. In June, a very odd letter appeared in The Lancet in response to the T's hypothesis. It was written by Ronald K. St. John of the Epidemiology Unit of the Pan-American Health Organization. He wrote that he took issue with her hypothesis of a, quote, possible cycle for the accidental introduction of ASFE into the human population. She speculates that, through an improbable series of events, AIDS originated in Haiti. There is no epidemiological evidence to support the ideas, allegations without strong supporting epidemiological evidence that one country is responsible for introducing an illness are reminiscent of syphilis in the Middle Ages when the French worried about the Italian disease and vice versa. St. John also wrote, Investigation in Haiti by the Haitian Ministry of Health, the Pan-American Health Organization, and the U.S. Department of Agriculture indicated that African swine fever is not being transmitted from pigs to man, and for these and other reasons it seems unlikely that it could be the cause of AIDS. Tragically, Teza's hypothesis was being totally distorted. She wasn't blaming Haiti. She was just suggesting that a relatively unsurprising zoonotic event may have occurred there. Pigs have a lot in common with humans, and it is hardly shocking to think that a disease other than the flu could come from pigs. If her idea was correct, it could have had the effect of saving many lives in Haiti itself. I began to realize that ASFE was an emotionally loaded and very political issue. Suddenly, AIDS had become a matter that involved international relations. I started wondering how, in such a rancorous, hypersensitive environment, the search for truth could proceed in earnest. I didn't realize that the environment would turn into a virtual minefield for anyone with an open mind who dared to get involved in the years that followed. A month later, in The Lancet, several scientists attempted to put the matter completely to rest. Curiously, they reported that in December 1982, before Jane Tees had even sent her idea to The Lancet, they looked for antibody to ASFE in serum from Haitian patients with AIDS. In the serum of eight patients and four normal controls, there was no evidence of antibody to ASFE, they wrote. At the very least, they clearly had shared her epidemiological suspicions about ASFE. The letter ended on what was becoming a rather familiar political note, quote, The hypothesis that AIDS originated in Haiti 
is damaging to Haiti and to Haitian communities abroad, unquote. What they didn't mention is that the hypothesis, if confirmed, was also potentially damaging to the multi-billion dollar pork industry in America and all over the world. From the first day I heard about ASFE, I made an effort to get my hands on every article ever written about the wily and devastating virus. At the time, there were over a thousand written about ASFE, which was discovered in 1909 by a Dr. Montgomery. For a while, African swine fever was called Montgomery's disease. The more I read about ASFE, the more the porcine disease matched aspects of AIDS that had emerged in the early research. As new data was published on AIDS, I kept comparing the findings to what was known about ASFE, and the T's hypothesis became more and more credible. Soon, I had a sheet of paper with a list of 20 symptoms or immune problems that AIDS and African swine fever had in common. The cavalier and dismissive way the idea was being treated by AIDS researchers and the government increasingly seemed odd and irrational. After the first response to her hypothesis was published, Tees wrote to The Lancet noting that the experiment conducted by the European scientists, quote, has not definitively disproved my idea. She pointed out that the scientists had not established which strain of the virus they utilized. She also noted that the antigen used in the test was irradiated, a process through which live virus is subjected to levels of radiation that render it harmless, which could have reduced the sensitivity of the test. She also argued that the clinical status of the patients could have affected the ability of the scientists to detect the presence of antibodies to the virus. She also warned that there is often a decline in circulating antibodies in pigs late in an ASFE infection. She ended her letter by describing the biggest problem in researching the possible link between AIDS and African swine fever. Quote, the near impossibility of obtaining ASFE antigen in the continental United States and the reluctance of the United States Department of Agriculture at Plum Island, New York, to study human pathogens shrouds the question of an ASFE AIDS link in unnecessary mystery. What Tease didn't know is that she had gotten herself involved in the opposite world of abnormal science which is always shrouded in unnecessary mystery, or worse. At the time, all research on African swine fever had to be either performed on Plum Island, a small island off the coast of Long Island, New York, or it had to be conducted using virus that is irradiated in order to prevent accidental outbreak of African swine fever on the mainland of the United States. The USDA lived in mortal fear of an AIDS epidemic which, if it ever spread across the United States, in addition to destroying the pork business overnight could become a permanent fixture because there is no treatment, no vaccine, and the virus can infect ticks and become endemic. Unfortunately, the dangerousness of the virus gave the government almost absolute power over the act of researching it on the mainland of the United States. There could basically be no research on ASFE without the willing participation and oversight of the American government. Other scientists and laypeople were beginning to take an interest in the possible connection. Fred Maurer, a retired veterinarian who had conducted extensive research on African swine fever virus in Africa, wrote to James Curran at the CDC, Having worked with African swine fever virus for several years in Africa, 
and on the pathology of it here, I fully agree with the possible relationship made by Jane Tees. He suggested that a pig be inoculated with the blood of a febrile AIDS patient because, quote, the remarkable similarity of the infection relative to the destruction of the immune system and the rapid mutation potential of the ASF virus surely makes such a study worth doing, unquote. The CDC began to test the AIDS ASFE hypothesis in June. Memos obtained by the native that were written by Gary Noble, the acting director of the Division of Viral Diseases, indicated that they planned to search for African swine fever virus in AIDS tissue samples using anti-sera provided by the United States Department of Agriculture. A Brooklyn doctor sent the CDC blood from 10 Haitians with AIDS and 5 non-Haitians with AIDS, as well as additional blood sera from healthy Haitian controls. The CDC also planned to send some of the blood to Spain to be tested by African swine fever experts there. A memo I obtained about the testing from the CDC, which was signed by Paul, who was probably Paul Fiorino, a lab worker who was involved in the testing, stated, we must finish off the ASFE issue. His word choice beautifully captured the CDC's attitude toward the hypothesis. I called the CDC frequently all that summer to try and find out what the results were. Late that summer, I was told by AIDS researcher Donald Francis that the results were negative. At that point, I thought the matter was dead, and African swine fever had no involvement in AIDS. Case closed. But things changed dramatically in the fall. Earlier that summer, I had been in touch with Susan Steinmetz, a legislative aide to Congressman Ted Weiss of Manhattan. Weiss served on a committee that had, among other things, the responsibility of overseeing the activities of the Centers for Disease Control. As Weiss's assistant, Steinmetz helped audit the activities of the CDC, and during a visit to the CDC offices in the autumn, she accidentally happened upon a memo on the results of the African swine fever testing, and knowing I was interested, she sent me a copy. The results, as reported on the ASFE memo, couldn't exactly be described as negative. Out of 90 different blood samples from AIDS patients and controls, five showed some degree of positivity for African swine fever virus. Two of the CDC's 10 control samples were positive, as well as three of the 16 AIDS patients from San Francisco. Around that time, I learned that the USDA had tested 47 members of its staff at Plum Island for antibodies to ASFE, and six had actually tested positive. What all of this told me was that the matter was not closed at all, and that additional research would be appropriate. I called Jane Tees and told her that I felt that Francis had misinformed us. I also called Don Francis and confronted him with what was in the memo. He told me that because some of the controls were positive, he had made a judgment call that there was no relationship between AIDS and African swine fever. I had met Francis at one of the first major AIDS conferences in New York City the year before, and I had listened to him talk at a reception later at Leonard Bernstein's apartment. Francis had struck me as arrogant and pompous, and unlike most of the assembled, mostly gay, guests, I was decidedly not impressed by him.
Even though he was slightly older than myself, he seemed young and cocky and the last person whose judgment call should be taken as the final word on something as important as the cause of AIDS. It was chilling to me to think that this character had the power to make such fateful decisions. In August of 1983, Jane Tees had written a two-page letter to Senator Durenberger of Minnesota in which she asked for help in pursuing her ASFE hypothesis further. She complained that the negative letters published in The Lancet gave no information on the patients, and in addition, almost no information is given on the source of the antigen, the type of antigen used, or details of the tests employed. She underlined the political issues she feared were impeding thorough research. Clearly, the USDA is worried that the pig farmers may get upset, and the Pan-American Health Organization is worried that I and the boat people, as well as the Haitian AIDS patients, are giving Haiti a bad name. However, it remains that at least 160 Haitians in Haiti have AIDS, and that there have been no reported cases from other Caribbean resort areas also frequented by gay American vacationers. To declare that Haiti is blameless seems irrelevant to trying to trace the cause of AIDS. With more than 2,000 AIDS patients, a more complete study of this association between a suddenly low virulent strain of ASFE and a suddenly appearing human disease is warranted. Unquote. On August 29, 1983, Durenberger forwarded the T's letter to the CDC and requested that information on the inquiry be sent to his office. On September 23, Dr. William Fagey wrote back to Durenberger's office, quote, ASFV does not appear to play any role in AIDS. With the help of virologists at Plum Island, the Centers for Disease Control has performed tests on serum from AIDS patients using target cells infected with ASFV. No positive reactions have been observed from AIDS patient serum. In addition, CDC has used methods similar to those used to grow ASFE from pigs to culture circulating blood cells from over 100 people, including patients with AIDS, patients with lymphadenopathy, and healthy contacts of AIDS patients. No cytopathic effect or other signs of ASFV have been detected. Although work continues, there is no laboratory evidence to confirm an etiologic link between ASFE and AIDS as suggested by Dr. Tease. CDC, the Food and Drug Administration, and others have concluded that such a link is extremely unlikely. End quote. On October 14, 1983, Durenberger forwarded the letter to Tease, and although she was unhappy with the response, she didn't write again to Durenberger until January 24, 1984. She thanked him and told him that she had thought the matter was closed, but that, quote, the New York native editor, Chuck Ortlib, sent me copies of CDC memos which clearly state that there were at least some positive for ASFE in the samples they tested. Dr. Donald Francis appears to have given incorrect information to Dr. Fege with regard to the results of the CDC tests and the tests at Plum Island, where six out of 47 workers were positive for ASF, unquote. She also told Durenberger that I had pressured the CDC to do more testing, which I had done through a series of phone calls and editorials in the Native. Tees asked for Durenberger's help in getting the Secretary of Agriculture's assistance because his cooperation was required for the CDC to do additional research on African swine fever. She also outlined her plans to take this matter to scientists outside the United States, 
quote, in disgust and after being told it was necessary to go outside of this country to have my theory tested, I have turned to research institutes outside of this country. However, in both England and South Africa, officials have told me that it is illegal to study African swine fever virus, and they have no experience with AIDS and or no experience with African swine fever virus. She then expressed a concern that if AIDS was indeed caused by African swine fever virus, then it was only a matter of time before all of the American pigs and all the pork products were infected with the virus, thus endangering every American who came in contact with undercooked pork. What she didn't know was that, unbeknownst to AIDS researchers, at that very time an AIDS-like illness was indeed spreading throughout the pig population in parts of North America. By the beginning of 1984, I had become extremely concerned about the games that the CDC and the Department of Agriculture seemed to be playing with the T's ASFV-AIDS hypothesis. I tried something I had done before in New York Native. I wrote an editorial in the form of an open letter. This one was addressed to James Mason, director of the CDC, John Block, the Secretary of Agriculture, Edward Brandt, the director of the National Institutes of Health, and Lawrence Altman, a medical reporter for the New York Times and an ex-CDC employee who was covering AIDS. I included Altman because of the paltry coverage he had given in the Times to the T's hypothesis. In general, he seemed to just parrot whatever the government said about the AIDS issue. To find out what was in that letter and the wild response from the Centers for Disease Control, all you have to do is order a copy of Truth to Power from Amazon or read it today on your Kindle. You can find more information about that book and all my books at charlesortleb.com. That's charles, O-R-T-L-E-B dot com. If you are a new listener to my weekly show, I hope you will check out my previous shows at ortlebradio.com. That's ortlebradio.com. They include interviews with chronic fatigue syndrome journalist Hillary Johnson, leading CFS researcher Dr. Jose Montoya, and one of the most brilliant doctors treating autism these days, Dr. Michael J. Goldberg. It only seems appropriate to close with a longer version of this show's theme song. Chris Davidson's Truth to Power is available on iTunes, Spotify, Apple, Amazon, and all the streaming services. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall overcome. We shall
power buries our dreams under a pile of lies. Power hates to see hope shining in our eyes. When power reigns and plays its games, power kills the strongest wills. But someone has to cross the River Jordan. Someone has to cross the River Jordan. Someone has to find a way to save the day Let this be the hour to speak truth to power Let this be the hour to speak truth to power When power is in the hands of those who do not care There's darkness in the sky and sadness in the air When power holds us down, treats us all like fools Time has come for one who can break all the rules when power reigns and plays its games, power kills the strongest wills. But someone has to cross the River Jordan. Someone has to cross the River Jordan. Someone has to find a way to save the day. Let this be the hour to speak truth to power. Jordan. Someone has to cross the river Jordan.